Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Aremus. And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, October 2nd. Yeah, it's only midweek, but it's been a wild news week already. As we're recording this, it was announced that Amazon would raise the minimum wage for its U.S. workers to $15 an hour. That's in response to a lot of pressure from labor activists and the media. Meanwhile, another enigmatic tech CEO is facing retribution. Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, has agreed to settle with the SEC following tweets he made about potentially taking the company private. As part of the settlement, Musk will have to step down from his role as chairman of Tesla's board, although he will get to remain CEO. And net neutrality is back in the news as well. At least at home here in California, Governor Jerry Brown signed a bill on Sunday to implement net neutrality protections in the state starting next year. But within 30 minutes of Brown signing, the Justice Department announced it would be suing the state of California to prevent circumventing the federal net neutrality repeal that happened earlier this summer. And just to add to the list, the headaches continue from Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. Last week, it was announced that a massive security breach of the social network allowed hackers to take control of upwards of 50 million accounts. Facebook does not yet know who the culprits are or what they plan to do with the information. Whoa, and finally, we have a very rad interview with Catherine Marr, the executive director of the Wikimedia Foundation, best known for Wikipedia, the fifth most popular website on the planet. Marr talks to us about how it all works, how a community of millions of volunteer editors are able to pull fact from fiction, and how a site dedicated to trying to be correct deals with false news, harassment within its editor community, and its changing relationship with Google, as well as why diversity is important in writing the web's massive nonprofit encyclopedia. And we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the most interesting stories we saw on the web this week. All right, and now we've come to the segment of our podcast where our producer has written in our show script <laughs> the words uncomfortable banter. April, how are you doing today? Yes, it's uncomfortable banter time. I'm fine. Will, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. Thanks, April. Let's get okay, it. great. Let's yeah, get into the sunny news. in California, chilly in Delaware, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually lovely here. We're, we're having a, okay. a September summer. But, uh, but let's talk about net neutrality because I assume our listeners care more about that than the weather in Delaware. I could be wrong. Yes, net neutrality is back in the news and it will continue to find its way back in the news because the fight is nowhere near over. Uh, on Sunday, California Governor Jerry Brown signed a bill into law that reinstates the Obama-era network neutrality protections for the state of California. 
Now, this actually comes after, of course, Trump's FCC rescinded the net neutrality rules earlier this summer, which gave Internet providers like Comcast and Verizon and AT&T permission to block or speed up or slow down access to websites or charge websites a fee to reach users at faster speeds. The new California law is actually the strongest net neutrality law in the country. Now, three other states, Oregon, Washington and Vermont, have also passed statewide net neutrality laws that reinstate Obama era rules after the FCC's repeal. But the California law is actually even stronger than the old net neutrality rules uh, in that it also prohibits a process that's called zero rating. Have you heard of this before, Will? Zero rating? Yeah, I remember this from past net neutrality fights. But why don't you refresh me and our listeners? It's when Internet providers uh, allow users to access certain services without digging into their data plans. So consumer advocates say that this is an anti-competitive move because if AT&T, say, gives its users free Spotify, then... All AT&T users will be much less likely to even consider using Apple Music or Pandora. It's really not a neutral practice. It's a form of discrimination is is what kind of consumer and, and Internet freedom ac- uh, advocates are saying. Okay, so that makes sense. And that's why net neutrality ad- advocates were excited for the prospect of change at the state level. But then the other shoe fell on Sunday, right? Yep. And, you know, net neutrality rarely ends up in the news without a bit of drama surrounding it. And within 30 minutes of Governor Brown signing the bill, the Justice Department told The Washington Post that they plan to sue on the grounds that the rules that were enacted by Trump's FCC that repeal the old rules also include a provision that states could not pass their own individual net neutrality rules that at all circumvent the federal rules. And so California's new net neutrality law may be in violation of that preemption clause in Ajit Pai, Chairman Ajit Pai of the FCC's, you know, new rules that were finalized and put on the books in June. So the Justice Department is asking for an injunction that the California state laws are not enacted when they're supposed to start on January uh, 2019. But, you know, that injunction has not been granted as of recording this. (laughs) It might be granted as early as this week. It's hard to say, but... But we should expect this to probably end up in some sort of court battle, right? Because that's they filed a lawsuit. So this uh, is something I, I will continue to report on. We will keep watch of closely. But it was a dramatic Sunday evening. All right. And speaking of dramatic weekend events, we also had one with Tesla and Elon Musk. After initially refusing to settle with the Securities and Exchange Commission over charges that he had committed securities fraud with his tweets about taking Tesla private, Elon Musk had a change of heart this weekend. He was under threat of potentially losing his position at Tesla and being barred from serving as a director or officer of any public company. Uh, And so he decided, after all, he would settle with the SEC. The settlement means that Musk will have to pay $20 million. Um, Tesla separately will have to pay $20 million. Musk will have to step down from his position as chairman of the Tesla board. They'll bring in a new chairman, and they'll also have to appoint two new independent uh, directors to the board. Also, Tesla, this is a sort of a funny side note, um, Tesla will have to do, as part of the settlement, a better job of monitoring Elon Musk's public statements, which is partly a euphemism for his Twitter habits. Okay, so he's been put in some serious time out. Uh, and Will, you actually argue in a recent piece that this is a good thing for the electric car company. Can you elaborate on that? Right. So the immediate reaction from investors was relief because it could have been much worse. Uh, Musk had uh, apparently backed out of a similar settlement uh, on Thursday 
which led on Friday to the SEC filing this complaint that, that would have entailed much more serious consequences. He reversed the decision. They reached the settlement. Tesla's stock went right back up to where it was beforehand. But I think it actually could be a net positive for Tesla. Put aside the $20 million for a second, which is really not much for either Musk or Tesla at this point. That's the so real... wild. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's just, it really is chump change to them. Um, but 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 it is I mean it's a, you know it's a significant amount from the SEC's perspective but the real change here is that Tesla will now get a person uh, as the chair of the board who has some power to check Elon Musk and that's something Tesla has never had if you asked a lot of people even people who support Tesla investors in Tesla people who want it to do well what the company's biggest problem was they would have told you that there's there's no second in command there's nobody looking over Elon Musk's shoulder reining in his craziest impulses now that's going to be mandated it's going to be imposed from above via the settlement and I have to say that, uh-huh. that uh, Musk having to pull back on his Twitter habits also cannot be a bad thing for Musk or Tesla, given our understanding of, of what it's done to him and the company. I know there are more intelligent takeaways from this, but my takeaway is that if I ever become a billionaire, I cannot make 420 jokes on public social media. Uh, That's so. right. He's, he said, <laughs> and, and we found out as part of the settlement that w- when he sent that fateful tweet about uh, how he was considering ta- taking Tesla private at $420 a share, he picked 420 to try to uh, impress or amuse his then-girlfriend Grimes, um, which is maybe never the best reason to decide on, uh, uh, on your public statements about uh, a, an existential change to the company you control. That is a really crazy tidbit. Um, I'm glad that you shared that. Uh, Moving on, though, to Amazon. Today, Tuesday, when we were recording this, Amazon announced it is increasing its minimum wage to $15 an hour for about 350,000 employees in its fulfillment centers and warehouses in the United States. This comes after pressure from years of reporting of treacherous working conditions and outspoken condemnation from folks like Senator Bernie Sanders, who has publicly lambasted Bezos, Amazon CEO, and the wealthiest person in the world, for not paying a living wage and causing its employees to be dependent on federal aid programs like food stamps, as well as a strong campaign from the Fight for 15 folks who have been arguing that a $15 an hour minimum wage should be standard across the country. And their campaign has just been really uh, inspiring and dogged. And we've been watching that happen for a few years. Sanders actually released a bill called the Stop Bezos Act, which is supposed to tax the large employers in order to cover the cost of the public benefits programs that people like you know, Amazon employees uh, sign up for and need. Uh, and it's not just, of course, Amazon, but other large employers where the majority uh, or a large amount of their workforce does uh, rely on public benefit programs because they're maybe not getting paid enough. Um, Amazon, to be clear, is the second largest employer in the country after Walmart. I guess it does take some of the steam out of an act called the Stop Bezos Act when, when yes. Bezos himself is is raising the wage for his workers vol- voluntarily. Yeah. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders took to Twitter and, and praised Bezos. Uh, but I don't know if this is really going to skirt the need for actual regulation of the company. Uh, and it wasn't just Sanders that has been kind of the motivating force in this. Amazon is likely trying to dodge antitrust action here in some way. As Stacey Mitchell, who's the co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, uh, which works on kind of anti-monopoly issues, pointed out on Twitter, uh, Senator Mark Warner, uh, and the, uh, you know, has called out Amazon, uh, I think, just this past week. Uh, and the EU Commissioner for Competition, Margaret Vestager, launched an inquiry into Amazon last month. And then there's the fact that President Trump doesn't like how powerful Jeff Bezos is, which is often in response to negative reporting on Trump and the Bezos-owned Washington Post. But really, 
They're in a very, very hot environment uh, where it seems like a lot of people are poised to potentially regulate them. And that's probably not what they want. And this is probably in some way a display that's saying, hey, we're incredibly powerful, but we don't abuse that power. We still treat people fairly. But of course, this is coming on the heels of a regulatory threat um, from multiple sides. So definitely something to keep note of. But it's still a good thing that they're paying people a living wage. That's a I good was going to say, can we give? Can we, do we <laughs> yes. give any credit to Bezos and and to Amazon here? I, I remember a while back when we were one of our tabs. I think was about this huge mansion that Bezos had bought, and we were talking about like the twenty five bathrooms in this mansion, <laughs> and saying why can't Bezos spend a little bit of that money to I don't know pay his workers a little better? Well, he's doing that. I mean, he's finally doing that, and, and yes, it does seem to be in response to to pressure. Um, but you know, it's still a good thing, even if it is in response to pressure. No, pay people more money. That's great. I think he's worth like $160 billion. Uh, but, you know, I, Amazon is worth way, way more than that. So I hope that um, that the people who put in their time and sweat into making the company work get some of that back and are able to actually have savings and have kids and, and have a sustainable life. Yeah, one of my favorite takeaways from this was on Twitter from Malcolm Harris, who goes by the handle Big Mean Internet. He said that what this proves is that one of the best ways to raise working conditions is to scare rich people. <laughs> right. I, you know, I, I don't know. We actually have not heard about this being also a signal of improved working conditions. We do know that uh, warehouse workers have complained that they're uh, even unable to take bathroom breaks and sometimes urinate into bottles. So, I mean, it is not a pleasant place to work from, at least from what I've gleaned from the reporting on this. Uh, But, you know, moving on, there's also been huge news in Facebook land, which is pretty typical these days. Uh, What happened there? There was a massive hack, right, Will? Yeah, that's right. So over the past five or eight years, we've become accustomed to these huge hacks making news headlines every now and then. They often involve some of our sensitive personal data. We've seen huge companies like Yahoo and LinkedIn, Sony, Equifax, Target lose control of users' passwords, their profile information, their credit card numbers in some cases. But I've been surprised in all this time we haven't seen a breach on that scale from maybe the world's largest data collection companies, Google and Facebook, the online advertising companies that are that are collecting all the information they can about our habits and online behaviors, they've actually done a surprisingly excellent job of securing that information. Not that there haven't been some lapses, but compared to corporate America and, and the corporate world at large, they've had very tight defenses. Well, it finally happened. And on Friday, Facebook announced that it had found evidence that hackers had taken advantage of three separate loopholes uh, in, in, involving its logins system to take full control of 50 million users' accounts. That means that they could post status updates for you. They could download all your data. They could look at your friends' non-public information and posts, you know, the stuff that they only share with their friends. Uh, Who knows what else? Uh, To make matters worse, Facebook's security holes apparently could have enabled the hackers to log into your other accounts. If you're one of those people who signed up for a new service, like maybe like a restaurant delivery, and when it encouraged you to sign up for a new account, you said, I'll just log in with Facebook. Well, maybe not the best idea. Uh, It now looks like the hackers could have used that to get into your other uh, online services if they had tried. But what we don't know is what they actually did with all this access. Mm -hmm. So we're still waiting for more information from Facebook to come out. Uh, We don't know if any of this happened. To be clear, we don't know if they just, you know, gained control of those accounts and did nothing with it. If they collected a bunch of information that they're going to use for some unspecified future purpose, um, we just don't know. 
So, I mean, there's a lot of questions here. And the main thing is, like, what is the effect of this? And I feel like, you know, so often we hear news of these massive hacks and it's just really hard for people to even understand why they should care because these this news happens so much and we don't actually know how this is affecting people's daily lives. That aside, and because I know we don't have answers to that, I want to compare this to Cambridge Analytica because with Cambridge Analytica, uh, to be clear, that was not a hack. That was actually the siphoning off of data that Facebook straight up allowed through their front door, right? And so although more users were affected in the Cambridge Analytica case, that was not a breach of their systems. Is that correct? Yeah. And interestingly, it was, it was a comparable number of users who were affected in both cases. But you're well, right. 80 something million, 50 million. But yeah, I mean, such big numbers. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, I think you raise a really good point, which is that the, the Cambridge Analytica scandal was about what Facebook allowed as a matter of policy and not about somebody hacking through Facebook's defenses to get access to stuff that 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 Facebook was trying to keep them out of. It was about Facebook giving away users' information to app developers so that they could use it in their apps. And then in the Cambridge Analytica case, that information was misused by a developer or used for a purpose that they had misled uh, their their Facebook users about. Yeah, and things will just continue to be shaking up for Facebook. I mean, Instagram, it's, I think, fastest growing segment or or where the most, you know, fastest growing revenue stream, at least, uh, has a new head, Adam Mosari, who we've interviewed on this show. Uh, so <laughs> definitely no shortage of drama or news coming out of that company. Yeah, congrats to Adam Mosseri. And we we would actually, I've got a request out to get him to come back <laughs> on the show and maybe talk about Instagram. So we'll see if he takes us up on that. I love Instagram. I'd love to talk about it. All right, but for now, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have our interview with Catherine Marr, Executive Director of the Wikimedia Foundation. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Catherine Marr, the executive director of the Wikimedia Foundation, the nonprofit that operates Wikipedia and its sister projects. Marr became executive director in 2016, taking over from Lila Tretikoff, and before that, Sue Gardner, who was there from 2007 to 2014. Wikipedia was started by Jimmy Wales in 2001. Previously, Marr worked on the technology and innovation team at UNICEF and worked on technology policy issues with organizations like Access Now and the World Bank. She joins me now from the Wikimedia offices in San Francisco, California. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Wikipedia is the fifth most popular website on the internet. That's according to Alexa ratings from earlier this year. And that popularity is in part 
due to the fact that the most popular website on the internet, Google, regularly directs people to Wikipedia at the top of its search pages. It's a kind of symbiotic relationship where people search Google for answers and Wikipedia is the answer that they get. And more recently, YouTube and Google have begun linking to Wikipedia to provide information on topics that tend to attract false news and conspiratorial theories in their efforts to be a more reliable source of information. But before delving into the interview, I want to give some statistics about just how massive Wikipedia is. I don't typically cite Wikipedia as a journalist, but I'll make an exception in this case. According to Wikipedia, there are over 5.7 million articles on the English version. That's thanks to pieces that were written and edited by nearly 35 million users, of which less than 200,000 are considered active editors. That means about 200,000 people make at least one edit a month. There are 300 active Wikipedias in different languages across the world, 48 million articles written worldwide. And one thing that's so incredible about it is that this whole project is made possible thanks to volunteers who write the entries and thanks to grants and donations from the readers and the editors that use the site. So I want to start by discussing the phenomena that is Wikipedia. Um, and, and that is that it actually seems to be largely correct. Is that correct? Am I correct about that? Uh, yeah, there have been numerous different studies that have shown that Wikipedia is sort of on average as correct as any traditional encyclopedia would be, in part simply because of the volume of articles that we have that when you do have inaccuracies, they tend to be very few and far between, but also they tend to get corrected really quickly. And so as you take a look across the sites, the majority of content is correct at any given time. So if I was to go on there and change the birthday of President Obama, that would get corrected really quickly. You wouldn't be able to change the uh, birthday of President Obama because you probably do not have enough of an edit contribution history to be able to touch an article that is as highly scrutinized as something like Obama. So anytime we have articles that are either sort of top um, of top interest to folks at any given time or are sort of in the news in any given moment, our editors take those very seriously and will protect them to make sure that they don't go ahead and get vandalized. So it'd be tough to change his birthday. Interesting. So I, I want to now ask who is editing Wikipedia. It seems like everyone wants to use it, but not everyone wants to edit it. And my understanding is that something like 90% of the editors are male. I don't know the racial background of editors, but I think it's safe to say that most are probably white or come from some kind of white collar background background. So in addition, to, in addition to who's editing Wikipedia, I'd like to know also the consequences of the homogeneity in the edit community. Yeah, I mean, we don't actually know much of the background of Wikipedia right. editors either. We have pretty in sort of strict privacy policies. In fact, you don't need to really give us any information to edit Wikipedia. You don't even need an account. You can just do it anonymously. Um, and over the years, we've tried different ways of surveying and sampling editors to get a better sense. I think our best case scenario is about 20% of editors uh, identify as female, but worst case would be closer to about 10. Um, and then in terms of ethnic and racial makeup, obviously, that really depends based on what Wikipedia we're talking about, right? You know, our Indic language Wikipedias are primarily going to be edited by people probably from South Asia. But it is true that we tend to assume that folks editing Wikipedia have what we think of as disposable time and disposable time tends to correlate with higher socioeconomic status. Um, how does this play out for Wikipedia? 
means that we tend to have biases that reflect the composition of our editors. And I will say that those biases also tend to reflect the broader world around us. So we talk about ourselves as a mirror held up to the world. You know, Wikipedia is a tertiary source that is based on secondary sources. And when we go to create articles on Wikipedia, we're very reliant on what's already been published and what exists in the world. And so if there is a dearth of secondary sources about female scientists or African novelists, it's going to be very hard for us to then create articles that reflect those individuals on Wikipedia itself. So when a new public figure comes on the scene, everyone jumps to visit Wikipedia, kind of becomes a second screen. And a bunch of editors also jump in to get their version of the truth up there. I wrote about this for Wired a couple years ago when Justice Merrick Garland was nominated. The traffic to his page soared because nobody really knew who he was unless you're kind of in the court scene. Um, And then behind the scenes, the editors fought over whether to call him a judicial moderate or a strong liberal. And with so many people coming to Wikipedia for information on Garland, these descriptions really matter. Uh, How do Wikipedia editors grapple with attempts to insert their own ideological leanings? I think that this is in one of those things where the more people who have an eye on a Wikipedia article, the more accurate and more neutral it tends to be. Um, Don't take my word for it. There's been lots of research on this subject. You know, the the more volume of traffic, the more likely it is that someone's going to make an edit. The more editors who are involved in the conversation, the more compact and neutral and accurate the content is going to be, the more citations, you know, the less sort of verbose or adjectival, you know, a description is going to be. And so it's likely in the case of Garland, and I'm not familiar with that particular article and how that moment in time affected the, its composition, but it's likely in that case or in the case of anybody who's sort of under the spotlight that if they couldn't decide on how to describe him, they they would either say some people describe as da 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 citation 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 others describe as the opposite citation 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 or they would not make a determination about how that description actually plays out and so wikipedians will tend to present information and ask you instead to draw your conclusions rather than uh, draw their own inferences or conclusions on topics that are difficult to be neutral around and a lot of that discussion happens on what's called a talk page right That's right. It's almost like the newsroom behind any Wikipedia article. Uh, One of the things we'd like to say is, if you're curious about what a talk page is, go to your hometown and look at the fights that people are having about, you know, the history of the town, the town hall, sort of, you know, local celebrities, things like this, Uh, because it can give you the best and sort of most immediate understanding of how talk pages actually work. There are places where Wikipedia editors take the conversation, not offline, it all happens in public. Uh, It's just sort of behind the curtain. Anyone can click on the talk tab and take a look at it. Anyone can contribute to that discussion. But it's where these sort of differences of opinion get hammered out while articles might be um, paused for editing or while folks are having sort of robust, difficult conversations about how to frame or present something or whether something should be included in an article at all. So you talked about how Wikipedia is better when there are more people involved in this editing process. That makes a lot of sense. How is the health of the Wikipedia editor community these days? In what direction is it trending? Is it getting livelier and healthier? Are the ranks thinning out? Is there a a crisis of of Wikipedia editorship? How's it doing? There is no crisis of Wikipedia editorship. (laughs) Our editors are alive and well. Um, No, I think that, you know, there was this interesting moment in time where people were very concerned about the trajectory of editorship. And it happened around, I want to say 2010, where Wikipedia grew very rapidly popularity between 2001 and 2010. And then what ended up happening was a lot of that original content was filled out, at least in some of the major languages. And we started to see a decline in 
in sort of casual editing. But what has happened is that our numbers have really stabilized to the point where we have about a quarter million editors every single month. Um, and about you know 80,000 of those come back month on month on month and make significant contributions to the site. So overall, our editor health is really good. Um, what we would love to see is an increased diversification of that. And we'd love to see some of the languages that are perhaps not as robust as they should be relative to the size of you know million speakers and the like. We'd love to see some of that grow. So for us, it's about maintaining the health of our current editing community, but then also thinking about how do we reach people for whom, um, you know, we're not there yet in their language and their geography and or representing their sense of identity. I imagine if you represent or if you come from a community that is not well represented in the editor community, then you may be prone to harassment or feel somewhat ostracized in these kind of tight knit talk pages where a lot of difficult conversations happen. So I'm curious about harassment on Wikipedia. Have we seen coordinated attempts to insert ideological bias or to harass people to the point where they stop maintaining certain pages? Yeah, absolutely. These things happen and they happen in places that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Um, I think that harassment the instances of extreme harassment, the kind that you see on some of the other social platforms, we see a lot less of that because Wikipedia has rules around civility um, around and that determine whether or not you can participate as an editor. And if you violate those rules, you will get blocked and banned by our community members. I think the bigger issue for us tends to really focus on tonality. So we've done some interesting research around uh, conversational failure. And it turns out that if you start a sentence uh, in dialogue with another editor with the word please, it actually is a really high predictor that that conversation is going to fail because it tends to be followed by please stop doing that or, you know, please don't do something that you don't know anything about. And so please is actually not an indicator of necessarily, you know, a positive outcome. So what we're trying to understand is in in a community and in an ecosystem where harassment or unfriendly spaces look very different than harassment on, say, the comments section of YouTube or in a Twitter channel, um, what can we do to facilitate more civil and respectful conversations when we can't necessarily automate to be able to understand because of the use of bad words, for example? And so it it's really about how do we create a culture of friendly interaction as opposed to specific instances of harassment because we just don't have that problem in quite the same way. Which is not to say it doesn't exist. I do want to be really careful to acknowledge that we have had instances of people who've been harassed on Wikipedia. It tends to be somebody gets, you know, a bone between their teeth and really goes after an editor or a group of editors. The times that we've seen this happen in a targeted way have tended to be around things that you would expect to be controversial. Um, you know, we were one of the sites to be enveloped in the whole Gamergate controversy, and we absolutely saw, you know, people really go head to head over what that particular discussion meant. And um, we had a number of Wikipedia editors who, you know, on all sides of the conversation and found themselves, you know, sanctioned for the way that they participated in those conversations. You know, I, I write a lot about harassment on social media. And obviously, Wikipedia is a social place where people come to interact. We do not hear as much uh, about creating a culture where people would be less prone to harass each other. It's more about moderation. So this is really interesting. Well, we don't do moderation in the same way that other social platforms do. We don't have armies of folks sitting offshore going through, uh, you know, content posting, trying to determine if it's a harassing language or if it violates our terms of service. Our community, because it is truly a community, engages in that conversation directly. And then they have modes and means of policies to refer conversations you know, uh, for review and sanction as appropriate. I think that 
you know, harassment is a problem, but for us, it is a relatively small problem relative to the challenge of how do you create a truly inclusive space for folks um, when, you know, we come from a certain culture and we come from a certain demographic background. How do you open that up so that it becomes a place where more people feel welcome? It's so interesting to hear you say you don't have moderation. I understand what you mean. You mean that that uh, Wikipedia or the Wikimedia Foundation isn't going in and moderating what the editors can say uh, or, or what people can add to an article. But in another sense, the whole project of Wikipedia is a project of moderation where people are, are moderating what each other can say and, and um, regulating each other's speech in various ways. It reminds me, you talked about the social platforms and it reminds me of the difficulties that the big social networks are having right now with misinformation, uh, conspiracy theories, fake news, all that sort of thing. And, and they talk about, well, we can't be an arbiter of truth. Or maybe in Facebook's case, we're trying, but it's really hard to be an arbiter of truth. Wikipedia is, <laughs> at its core, an arbiter of truth. That's what you guys do. So why do you think they're having such a, a tough time with it? And, and you know, would you have any advice for the people running those platforms? Well, I think one thing that's really different from us is from the beginning, it's been a community-driven project. We don't set policies um, around what, you know, what we don't set editorial policies for Wikipedia. The community sets that and the community has evolved over time with these editorial policies in order to assess information quality. Um, and also, you know, the sorts of standards that they want for conversations in their spaces to tie it back to the conversation around friendly spaces and contribution. But specifically for content moderation, you know, there are a couple really core policies that drive the way that Wikipedia articles are created. And I think the reason that they are effective is that they're they're clear. There's only three of them. They're fairly easy to understand. There's tons of examples for how they work. There's lots of different eyes that focus on, you know, eyeballs, essentially, like people who are focused on ensuring that those policies are upheld. And it all happens in the open. The policies around accuracy of information, it requires that we cite back to what we call reliable sources. It means that people can't just put out fringe theories based on what their interests are. They have to find citations and information. It has to be peer reviewed or published or have some sort of process of editorial scrutiny. Uh, these are the policies that that have created a sense of accuracy and accountability on Wikipedia and accountability, not just for the editors, but an accountability to the public who reads this content. Um, and I think that's just so completely different from the way these other platforms work. You know, another thing that I'd point to is we don't have divergent forking, you know, narratives or feeds that you sign up for. When you come to a Wikipedia article, you're looking at the exact same thing, whether you're sitting, you know, on the other side of the continent from me, or if you're sitting in the next office over. Um, that doesn't afford us the space to shift narratives based on what your interest is or what an algorithm suggests that you might like. We have to be sort of open and publicly accountable for what is published, no matter what your perspective or viewpoint actually is. Um, you know, it's funny you mention or refer to Wikipedia as an arbiter of truth. We actually don't agree with that characterization. What we would say is that Wikipedia reflects knowledge as it exists at any given moment in time. That is, knowledge is constantly being constructed and it's constantly being deconstructed. And so edits are made to Wikipedia, content is removed from Wikipedia, knowledge changes dramatically over time. And what Wikipedia offers is just sort of an aggregate understanding of what we know about a topic at any given moment based on what's been published or what common consensus says. I always sort of use the example of Copernicus or Galileo, you know, however many hundreds of years ago, had they written an article, we'd have some really strong articles about how the sun revolves around the earth. But we as 
you know, hopefully humanity have learned a lot more about our solar system. And now we know that the earth revolves around the sun. So knowledge is a living thing, but it's not necessarily about trying to get to some understanding of truth. It's more just about representation about what we can all agree on at any point in time. Where I start to find this really powerful is less on things that are kind of settled, like heliocentrism versus geocentrism, but more about how our history and understanding of culture and understanding of politics and understanding of representation is constantly evolving. You know, Wikipedia is edited 350 times a minute, which essentially means that every minute there are 350 opportunities to challenge what it is that we know and how it is that it's been assembled and who has you know contributed to that knowledge base and whose voices are included and how it is that we might change that over time. So I think of Wikipedia not as an arbiter of truth, but really sort of a living contestation for how knowledge is formed and created, which is why we always say, you know, don't trust Wikipedia, read it with a critical eye, check the citations. And if you see something, contribute to it because the way that we form knowledge is by contributing to it together and building on what's come before. It's true that there's all of these ways to gain social clout and to gain social trust uh, in the Wikipedia community. But sometimes people edit Wikipedia anonymously or it's their first time. And uh, sometimes it's kind of funny. And it's something (laughs) that you guys call vandalism. And I want to ask about that because I saw this meme going around a few years ago. I I think it was an actual screenshot from Wikipedia. And it was edited to say that Charlie Sheen was half man, half cocaine. And it was changed quickly back, I'm sure. But I think this happens a lot. And I'm curious, how does Wikipedia contend with vandalism? And is there any particularly funny one that comes to mind? (laughs) Uh, Just the other day, somebody tweeted about the fact that there's a Wikipedia article that's a list of fictional states and nestled in there was uh, Wyoming, a fictional state made up for tourism revenue uh, by Idaho. Um, I thought that was kind of funny. As soon as I retweeted it, it was gone. Um, But I think that, you know, often we see these sorts of vandalism. I think that they're funny. I also know that they can be quite annoying for our Wikipedia editors. I like to think of them as ways of demonstrating that Wikipedia is a living project and as a reminder to folks that you can go ahead and get in there and edit. Um, We actually have more Wikipedians than would like to admit that they first started because of vandalism. They came in (laughs) to sort of mess with the site and they realized, oh, like that vandalism didn't stay up for very long. I'm curious how that works and then get involved in that way. In general, you know, there's different ways that vandalism works. Um, I don't think this will surprise anyone, but some of the highest volume of vandalism tends to happen in school hours. Uh, and it tends to be sort of like bad words. Uh, mm-hmm. But we have bots that sort of scrub the site from end to end and remove instances of poop that shouldn't belong in a sentence and the like. Uh, the other forms of vandalism tend to get reverted very quickly. I think uh, Congress is sort of notorious for vandalizing Wikipedia. In fact, I think it's blocked this week. Uh, Congress, you can't edit with a congressional IP this week because people abuse their privileges. Um and uh, we've seen that sort of thing happen. You know, Wikipedia editors tend to keep a very close eye on what we call our recent changes feed. And there are folks who consider themselves just to be vandalism patrollers who are always looking for things that are a little suspicious. We give this a boost by having a, you know, machine learning uh, systems that are able to identify what is likely a good edit or a bad edit and help editors triage in order to keep a pace with the 350 edits a minute because it's a, it's a pretty huge volume of activity on the sites at any given time. With Wikipedia now serving as a kind of fact checker for YouTube's most polarizing and conspiracy theory videos, is there a fear that people will see these videos about, say, like how climate change isn't real and then click on the Wikipedia link and edit the article to incorporate the counterfactual information they just saw? 
I, this was something that we were concerned about. Um, obviously, anytime a major platform turns the worst of the internet against our sites, we worry about what the implications are for our editing community. Our editing community actually took it all in stride. They said, hey, we, you know, we've got means by which we monitor these pages. We know how to deal with vandalism. We've been doing this for 17 years. Uh, we'll let you know when it's a problem. And we went back and said pretty much the same thing to YouTube. We said, we'll let you know when it's a problem. And if it does become a problem, we'd appreciate some support around this. But overall, it seems as though it's something that is working out. I mean, our mission overall is to get knowledge out there and to be the correct place <laughs> for information to have it be as accurate as possible. Um, and if it is a tool in the arsenal of ensuring a more accurate and sort of fact based internet, then I think we're probably all for it. It's fascinating how the community is able to morph and absorb more responsibility as more people kind of start to use the internet and as more large platforms start to rely and continue to rely on Wikipedia as a source of information. And I think what I would say there is that because it works in this instance doesn't mean that we're going to be the catch-all for all of the worst bits of the internet. In reality, in reality, anytime that there is an intermediary layer between people who are reading Wikipedia content and where the content itself is created, we see that as a risk. You know, part of the promise of Wikipedia is that anybody anywhere can go in and check where does the information come from? When was it added? You know, what's the edit history? What's the discussion on the talk page? Where does the citation go? And so whenever there's an intermediary layer that sits between our readers and our contributors, we view that as a breakdown of the trust and the promise model that Wikipedia offers in terms of accountability and transparency. But we also view it as a risk factor to the sites as a whole, because how Wikipedia works when people stop by to read it. Wikipedia works when a reader's like, oh, I think that isn't, you know, that ac information isn't accurate, that probably needs an update, or that probably could use a different citation. And so the volume of traffic to our sites is actually the way in which Wikipedia stays up to date, makes sure that our content is constantly expanding. And so if that, you know, that information is being siphoned off and presented in different ways and in different places, that actually does create a risk for us. So I think there's a tension between how do we make sure information is available in the most useful ways, such as the referral back with uh, the YouTube videos, but also making sure that, you know, that information is not taken completely out of context and presented in a way that ultimately chokes off the way that Wikipedia works. And you actually just answered uh, part of the question that I was going to ask, <laughs> which is, you know, part of the future of, of computing right now and the internet seems to be this move toward voice assistance, whether it's on a smart speaker like an Amazon Echo or Google Home, or whether it's, you know, Siri on your phone or talking to the Google Assistant on your phone. And a lot of those, when you ask a question, when you ask Siri or, or Alexa or Google a question, the answer you get will be content from Wikipedia. So that's a way that people are going to be using Wikipedia more and more, presumably, but maybe not even know that they are using Wikipedia, certainly not visit the site uh, and, and maybe run into a fundraising appeal or, or get involved in that way. Is that a big concern for you going forward? And, and are you uh, hopeful that donations from those big platforms? I saw that Amazon recently gave a million dollars to Wikimedia Foundation, maybe partly for that reason. I mean, it, it, does that have to become more of your business model now if these platforms are going to be siphoning off your information and, or siloing your information in that way? 
I think I have many thoughts in response to your question. One thing to note is that there's the immediate value that these platforms get out of having Wikipedia as a resource from which they can pull in answers and information to provide to their users. But the other sort of part that most people aren't as aware of is that Wikipedia is also like this massive computational resource for many different platforms in terms of the way that they're developing machine learning, the way that they're training their AI, AI assistants, and the way that they treat natural language processing. And so we view ourselves as a resource that should be supported by industry as a whole, not just because we create a transactional value to them because Amazon or Siri or what, you know, whatever can answer our question, but because we've actually created a tremendous resource just in terms of data modeling and support that these companies can go out and sort of train and do advanced computational science around. Um, and there is nobody that is contributing back because of the value we've created in that space. The reason that we think that that should engender long-term support is because we are essentially the commons as a resource for the entire internet that business model, entire business models have been created around. And if you don't actually support that commons, it's not going to exist at some point. And that's going to be really problematic for a business model that depends on its existence, um, particularly as, you know, companies are pushing into new and different markets. It's increasingly the case that they're looking to sites like Wikipedia, which have content that's available in those local languages as sort of a baseline to assess like the market maturity and whether people are using the open web and whether they're creating content in those languages. So overall, the supporting Wikipedia so that we're out there and accessible to more people and accessible to more users in more languages, and that our content is diverse and reflective of, you know, the entire world and not just sort of North America or male experience is ultimately a good thing, not just for us and not just for our readers, but for the internet as a whole. Um, you know, in terms of what that support looks like, I think that it's not just about monetary support. We are very proud of the fact that 85% of our donations come from small dollar donations from individual users. The average donation is $15. And the remaining 15% is tends to be sort of traditional foundation donations. Uh, we don't want to be entirely beholden to large corporations giving us money, but we do feel as though having some sort of sustainable model of support, whether it is you know engineering support or in-kind support, or just thinking about what the product decisions actually mean in terms of the their implications for how people can contribute and access Wikipedia. That's the sort of conversation that we want to be having with these different platforms. You know, at the end of the day, we create a tremendous amount of value in the world. And we want to make sure that that value is being recognized and being supported and sustained, because it's very easy to make a series of decisions that in aggregate could really damage that value. And I don't think anybody intentionally wants to hurt Wikipedia. <laughs> One of the incredible things about Wikipedia is how many Wikipedias there are. And you did mention uh, some of the, the language issues that have come up. I'm sure they're not all as robust as the English version is. In fact, I know they're not. But and I'm sorry, I have a few questions here. Can you tell us about efforts to expand Wikipedia in other languages? Also, what's the second biggest language after English? And is Wikipedia available in China? <laughs> Lots of different questions. Yes. Um, so there are a whole host of Wikipedias that are smaller languages. They tend to be um, sort of secondary languages within countries or indigenous languages or non-colonial languages. And we at the Wikimedia Foundation 
actually place a great deal of emphasis on supporting communities who are doing work in these languages. Uh, we have grants that are available to community members who are organizing and doing events around outreach and growth of, of uh, smaller language projects. We call them our emerging community projects. And the whole idea is that we don't make a decision about sort of winners and losers on language. The fact that Spanish and German and English are and French are enormous doesn't mean that, you know, that is sufficient to cover the entire world. We want people to be able to access content in Zulu and Hossa and um, whatever the sort of indigenous languages and identities um, are that they're seeking information. We know that that's actually critical to the way that cultures continue to live, the way that identities continue to live. There's a whole uh, example of Welsh Wikipedia, where the national government of Wales has a Wikipedian in residence who is just there to make sure that Welsh continues to be a living, thriving Wikipedia language, in large part because they know that having Wikipedia exist in Welsh is actually a marker as to whether other internet services will index Welsh as a living digital language. And of course, we can all understand that if your language goes away or doesn't exist in a digitized form, your identity starts to go away too. Um, so, you know, we're really supportive of this. We think that this is part of our sort of cultural diversity um, and recognizing that, you know, the sum of all knowledge requires all sorts of different understandings of knowledge, all sorts of linguistic basis for knowledge. Uh, so the second largest language is Cebuano, which was a uh, popularized or populated rather through uh, a bot, which went ahead and sort of auto-generated entries. And that local community made the decision that that was something that they were willing to do. Other languages are less willing to do that. And I guess Swedish right after that, uh, they did the same thing. You know, our Germans, for example, have resisted ever using bots uh, to create content. So it's really, it's a decision based on on specific languages. And then, sorry. Is Wikipedia available in China? Wikipedia is not currently available in China or in Turkey. Uh, but of course, Wikipedia does continue to be built by Chinese speakers. We have Chinese speakers who are outside of China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, of course, but then other Chinese speakers, uh, including folks from ma mainland China who edit Wikipedia from outside of the country, as well as from inside the country using circumvention technology. So we... Wikipedia in Chinese is not as large and robust as we would like to see relative to the number of Chinese speakers, but we remain optimistic that it will continue to be built and will be there for when and if uh, China ever decides to unblock us. We would love that. Catherine Marr, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. One final quick break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen online this week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's tabs time. <laughs> uh, I think, Will, uh, for once, you do not have 100,000 tabs open, but I have a couple. So I'm just going to jump in if that's cool. And I actually want to start with a tab open that you are at fault for. It's a story that you wrote, and it's a great story, uh, a cover story uh, that came out last week in the pages of Slate.com about Apple News and uh, specifically about how Apple News has been a tremendous driver of traffic across the news industry. But it's been this like mystery traffic 
traffic because it kind of happened out of nowhere in many cases or all of a sudden, and it's just ballooned really quickly over the past year. But the catch is that we're not making any money off that traffic. Will, can you kind of break down why we're getting all these views and everyone's reading our stories, but it's not actually supporting our journalism? Yeah. First, it's really gracious of you to make up for my not having a tab by no, 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 giving me my own it. cover no, story as one of I, your tabs. This is an important story. A lot of people read it, and I would think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about it. So, so if you could kind of break down for us where in uh, the the big holes are here, like why why are people reading us and why aren't we able to support that with advertisements? Yeah, it's an interesting story because it's it's been sort of a, a, a little secret of the industry that everybody's excited about the Apple News readership growing, but nobody wants to really bring up the awkward fact that they're making basically no money from it. The reason is a little complicated, but basically when you read a story on Apple News on your on your phone or your iPad, or now you can actually use Apple News on your desktop as well, you're staying within Apple's app. So it's not, there's no link in there if you're reading a Slate story that would take you to slate.com and then you'd come back to Apple News. You just stay in Apple News. And so any revenue from advertising that's going to come from that is going to be advertisements that, that Apple either places itself in the app or allows the publisher. So in the, in our example, uh, allows Slate to place in the story. Well, Apple is not really an advertising company. In fact, it's a company that has a lot of qualms with the advertising industry. Um, it makes its money in other ways, as we know. And uh, it has been very restrictive on the types of advertisements that you can place in Apple News. Um, you know, for instance, you until recently couldn't place ads through Google's very popular DoubleClick network in Apple News. They've now fixed that. But the barriers remain. It just remains difficult to sell ads on the platform, and that's why people aren't seeing money from it. But I, I do want to note the upside here. I mean, everybody sort of latched onto the fact like, holy crap, people publishers are giving away their stories on Apple News. Apple is, is keeping all the readership and not sending them any money. And that is a problem. Um, Apple does have some plans to remedy it, I think, by helping publications get subscribers, get people to sign up, and, and Apple's going to support subscriptions within Apple News. But the good thing about Apple News and, and the upside to this whole story is that unlike Facebook, Apple News does not totally distort the incentives that face media companies. It doesn't reward clickbait. It doesn't reward propaganda. It doesn't reward um, sort of fly-by-night fake news outfits pandering to people's biases. It really rewards original reporting. Um, when you talk to companies that are that are putting out this journalism, they say that Apple is already always interested in the stories that their editors think are the best and the most worthwhile. So it kind of restores some of that editorial control to the news distribution process. So if they ever could figure out a way to make the money work, I think people would be really excited about it. But after three years, that's still an open question. Well, I think it shows that having an app that drives readership to news can work. We just need to find a way to run ads against it that actually comes back to the publishers who are making that news. It doesn't seem like it's an unworkable problem or something that they can't necessarily solve. They just have to want to solve it. I want to remind our, our listeners that Apple is the most valuable company in the world, according to Forbes' statistics, which are pretty reliable. So I think they can afford to, to put some heads in the game here. Yeah, they, they definitely can. Um, and, and another way to do that might be through micropayments. This has been an idea floated for a micro long time. Micropayments. I want micropayments. What's a micropayment? Uh, <laughs> micropayments is like, you know, if you, you go to a, a story on the web and instead of paying with your eyeballs and, and looking at a bunch of 
crappy display ads that nobody wants to see, you somehow automatically pay like maybe a penny or like a fraction of, the, of a penny to the publisher through some kind of system. That's one possibility for the future. Apple also recently acquired an app called Texture that bundles together your uh, a bunch of subscriptions to publications all for one monthly price, kind of like Netflix for the news. And Apple, there are reports that Apple's planning to integrate that into Apple News. So maybe reading the news on Apple's app could become more like watching Netflix and less like walking through Times Square with with garish billboards assaulting you at every step. Yeah, I've never used Apple News to get my news, but I am a journalist, so my news habits are unhealthy and <laughs> largely fueled by Twitter. But um, it's interesting that a lot of people are doing that. It also just shows the monopoly that Apple has because the only way they're able to push Apple News and make it be so successful is because they have so many devices in people's hands. And that actually does it for our show this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthenslate.com. I've been really appreciating some of the feedback we're getting. Uh, we do try to reply when we can. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Remus. Thanks again to our guest, Catherine Marr. You can follow her on Twitter at K-R-Marr. That's K-R-M-A-H-E-R. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We, of course, really appreciate you taking the time and for giving us five beautiful stars and a really nice comment. It's super sweet. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Cody Hamilton for engineering here in Berkeley, California. And thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware. And we will see y'all next week. It's been fun as always. Bye for now. <laughs>